All right. If you would turn to Psalm 90 in your Bibles, that would be great. So, we are pushing the clock today, so you're going to have to listen quickly. Psalm 90, verses 1 through 17. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death, they are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children, May the favor of the Lord rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the Psalms again this morning to learn more about ourselves, to learn more about you, to learn how to pray, and to learn who you are and what you have done. And Lord, we come somewhat fearful. We want wisdom, but we don't know how to get it. We're afraid we might get wisdom through hard things, and we're afraid of life being hard or difficult or filled with suffering. So Lord, once again, teach us what to say, teach us what to believe, teach us how to pray, teach us to draw near, and help us to learn from you this morning. And so speak through the Psalm of Moses this morning, By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. There are few lines in literature, the movies, headlines that come across as ominous as the prophecy, your days are numbered. In murder mysteries, if someone's days are numbered, there's probably a plot in the works to knock them off. If we read in the paper that a company's days are numbered, we assume it'll probably file for bankruptcy or be bought out. If someone told you that your days were numbered, you'd probably take that as a threat. Although, when we say that our days are numbered, we usually mean that they are few. However, when God says that our days are numbered, he usually means that nothing can hinder his plan for our life. I was reminded of this by the big movie of this past year, Top Gun Maverick. 
I know you all saw it. And in the movie, Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell, played by Tom Cruise, is called on the carpet by Rear Admiral Hammer Kane, played by Ed Harris. And to say the Admiral is a little peeved would be a massive understatement. And it is a classic, your days are numbered, scene. The Admiral is sitting at his desk, looking through pages of Maverick's personnel file, and Maverick standing at attention before him. And very dryly, he says, Maverick, 30-plus years of service, combat medals, citations, only man to shoot down three enemy planes in the last 40 years, distinguished, 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 yet you can't get a promotion, you won't retire, and despite your best efforts, you refuse to die. He said, these planes you've been testing, Captain, one day, sooner or later, they won't need pilots at all. The future is coming, and you're not in it. The end is inevitable, Maverick. Your kind is heading for extinction. Of course, as Maverick is leaving the Admiral's office, he turns around very quietly. He says, maybe so, sir, but not today. Now, while the Admiral's referring to fighter pilots and their breed heading for extinction thanks to advanced computer technology and robots and AI taking over the flying of aircraft, many in the secular West are saying the same thing about Christians. Christians, your days are numbered. Your kind is heading for extinction. And in this view, religion is dying out because Western society is becoming less religious. Science and technology can take care of all of our needs. But there's one problem. This approach is not working. You see, our lives have gotten way more complicated. In this week's email, those of you who get the weekly email, if you don't, let me know. We'll make sure you get it. I wrote about how we're suffering from a crushing information overload. It's causing a great deal of anxiety and stress. There's a corresponding inability to make decisions because there's just too much information to process. The exponential explosion of information is mind-boggling. Consider these numbers. In 2019, just four years ago, the Internet saw the transmission of 188 million emails, 18 million texts, and 4.5 million videos viewed on YouTube every single minute. By 2020, there were 40 times, uh, 40 times more bytes of data on the internet than there are stars in the observable universe. And some estimates suggest that by 2025, less than two years away, 463 exabytes of online data will be created each and every day. That's the equivalent of 213 million DVDs a day. Now, before I look this up, I didn't even know what an exabyte was. But consider this. Five exabytes is equivalent to all the words ever spoken by all humans since the dawn of time. And in 2025, that amount of data will be created every 15 minutes. And here's the really, really nuts thing. The craziest thing of all, 
it's all in our pockets. It's just a few clicks away. Our phones are now encyclopedias, they're libraries, they're universities. And as convenient as this access is, answers to any question that you might have, results for any painting or video that you want to see, untold resources for whatever you want to research, the glut of information is massively overwhelming. And it is not making us wise. Just as too much food can make a body sick, too much information makes the soul sick. Information gluttony is a real problem in the age of Google. Its symptoms are widespread and concerning. And just look around. Anxiety, depression, narcissism, anger, resentment are all on the rise. And by any measure, happiness is in steep decline. Now, I've been bringing books lately. And this is based on two books. How to Find Yourself While Looking Inward is Not the Answer. It's excellent. And The Wisdom Pyramid by Brett uh, McCracken, also excellent. And Brett McCracken writes in this book about going to speak to a group of college students. He works for the Gospel Coalition. And so he went to this college. He's meeting in a room uh, of college students. And he asked them two questions. There's 40 college students. How many of you have a smartphone? All 40 hands went up. And they said, how many of you would say your smartphone has made you a better, happier, healthier person? Three hands went up. That's where we're at. One writer, a couple more books here, Jean Twenge is a prominent social psychologist. She wrote this book, Generations. And iGen, why today's super-connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. So I'll have these down here if you want to look at them. But she says, technological change isn't just about stuff, it's about how we live, which influences how we think, feel, and behave. It's not an exaggeration to describe Gen Z, or iGen as she calls them, as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. What does all that mean? It means we have an issue. If you're going to make it through life without making an absolute mess of things, you need something that we don't talk about anymore. Secular culture talks a lot about science and technology. But what we need is something that nobody talks about anymore. And it's not the same as knowledge, and it's not the same as goodness. It's wisdom. What does it have to do with Psalm 90? Quite a bit, I think. Simply because this psalm presents us with God's plan for acquiring wisdom. We've seen through all of the statistics that wisdom is greatly needed in the world. So what's God's plan? It's a pretty simple plan. First, you have to live a long time. And second, you have to know that eventually you're going to die. That's it. Being aware of those two things will help you become wise. So how does wisdom come from living a long life and accepting your eventual death? That's where Psalm 90 comes in. The author of this psalm knows something about wisdom. Psalm 90 is the only psalm written by Moses. Probably makes it the oldest psalm of all. Uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce suggests this psalm is set 
uh, at the time of the events in Numbers chapter 20. In that chapter is three significant events. The death of Moses' sister Miriam, the sin of Moses that kept him from entering the promised land, and then the death of Moses' brother Aaron. It's a time of change and loss and reflection. And the first part of this psalm, Psalm 90, reminds us of those realities of life. And the second part contains some specific requests in response to those realities. And I think you'll see how appropriate this psalm is as we live in a time with a great deal of uncertainty. If Numbers 20 is the background for the psalm, then Moses has been leading the Israelites for about 38 years. The desert wanderings are a result of Israel's unwillingness to enter the promised land, and their punishment for this refusal to trust God is that every adult alive at the time of the rebellion would die in the desert. Consequently, for 38 years, Moses has witnessed the death and burial of hundreds of thousands of people. And at this point in his life, the only people left of that generation are him, his brother Aaron, his sister Miriam, and Joshua and Caleb, who weren't punished because they were faithful even when everybody else wasn't. It is hard when your friends and contemporaries start to die. Even at this stage of my life, I'm sobered when I see obituaries of people who are my age and younger. Imagine what this was like for Moses. He now has to bury his own brother and sister. He's been told he will not enter the promised land after longing for that day for almost 40 years. It's a trying time. And as Moses reflects on his life, he identifies four realities that lead to wisdom. And we get him in this psalm, verses 1 and 2. Wisdom that comes from trust. From trust. Moses starts where everyone should start, by looking at the Lord. Moses says, verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Everlasting is a figurative word in Hebrew. It means from the vanishing point to the vanishing point. God is from the vanishing point in the past, and he reaches to the vanishing point in eternity future. So just as far as you can see, vanishing point to vanishing point, he is still God. When life becomes overwhelming, and we have to remember the one in whom we put our trust. He is the one who is always there. He was here when we came into the world. He will be there when we leave the world. He is on the throne in prosperous times, and he remains on the throne in economically stressful times. He is God when we're healthy, and he is God when our health fails. He is God when we experience victories, and he is God when we fail. No matter what happens in our life, we must remember this truth that God is consistent. No matter the circumstances, we can trust God is in control, God loves me, and God never makes a mistake. And the anchor in all situations is the character of God. And when we can step back from our circumstances and look to the Lord and trust in his character, then we begin to develop a heart of wisdom. Second, we get the wisdom that comes from acceptance. The wisdom that comes from acceptance. Verses 3 to 6. What 
The second thing Moses observes here is that whereas God is eternal, we're not. We're just passing through. Starting at verse 3. You turn men back, in, uh, back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new. By evening it is dry and withered. He says that we are like the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. One commentator said, imagine a room with a window open on both sides of the room and a bird flies in one window and out the other. That's a picture of our lives. And the harsh reality is this, even though we would like to think that we are incredibly significant and important to the world, the truth is in 150 years, no one's going to remember us. Our names may be written in a family history somewhere, and there may be for a period of time pictures and videos of our lives, but the reality is we will be largely forgotten. Death reminds us we're dust. It puts us in our place. One theologian said, you're going to die. One morning the sun will rise and you won't see it. Birds will greet the dawn and you won't hear them. Friends and family will gather to celebrate your life, and after you're buried, they'll return to the church for ham and scalloped potatoes. Soon your job and favorite chair and spot on the team will be filled by someone else. The rest of the world may pause to remember, and it will give you a moment of silence if you're rich or well-known. But then it will carry on as it did before you arrived. Now, Moses is not saying this to depress us, although I find his words are doing that. Um... He is saying this to get us to live with perspective. He wants us to recognize the fleeting nature of our lives. Perhaps you found yourself giving a pep talk, as, as I have done, to a high school or college student who's struggling, and you're hanging there. You know, it's only four years. And we try to convey that the present is nothing in comparison uh, to the reward of finishing school. And those four years may seem like an eternity to a student, but it's not. It's just a small slice of life. And now Moses sees the big picture, the whole picture. He sees uh, that most of what we see as critical in our lives is just a moment. And rather than living for that moment, we would be wise to focus on the eternal. Accepting the fact that we're creatures who are only here for a while will help us to live with wisdom. Despite what our culture says, you can't have it all, see it all, know it all, or be it all. And accepting that is one of the steps on the path to wisdom. Third, we get the wisdom that comes from aging. Verses 7 to 12, Moses reflects on, he's, he's reflecting on the sinful character of man, but he's very conscious of his own sin. If our context is correct, uh, Numbers 20, then immediately in the, in the middle of that chapter, Israel's complaining about not having enough water to drink. You may be complaining about the same thing right now. And so God tells Moses to speak to the rock and that God would cause water to come from the rock. But instead, Moses strikes the rock and says, must we bring water from the rock? 
And in his frustration, Moses took at least some of the credit and glory that belonged to God. He didn't do exactly what God had told him to do. And as a result, God said, you're going to die before you enter the promised land. And as we read that, we're reminded that even the best of men are only men at best. It may seem like God is being harsh with Moses, but Moses is the leader of this huge group of people, this nation. And if Moses didn't respect God, no one would. We're all sinful people on our own. We'd probably do worse than Moses. Our choices and the choices around us bring painful consequences into our lives. And so Moses writes, verse 7, We're consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. That ought to terrify all of us. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So it sounds negative, but Moses is actually just being realistic. The journey of life is not easy. Just think about it. In the toddler years, there's frustration that nobody understands what you want. In the school years, there's, there's cliques, there's the social awkwardness, the physical lack of coordination, new skills that have to be learned, and then, of course, there's those mean classmates. After school, there's the challenges of paying bills, finding jobs, managing a household, making good decisions, gaining respect. In middle age, we have to deal with teenagers, the increasing pressure to produce in our jobs, we run fast and feel like we're getting nowhere. And as I can now attest, as you get older, there are a host of physical challenges. Our eyesight and hearing start to go. There are stress tests and colonoscopies and arthritis and a host of diseases that lurk in the shadows. And for those who make it into their senior years, they battle an increasing loneliness as their friends die off. There's the reality that life is almost over and a feeling of increasing insignificance as you feel marginalized by others because of your age. Let's be honest. Life is not easy at any age. Sometimes life's a struggle. Sometimes it seems meaningless. To one degree or another, all these things are the cumulative effects of sin. Now, William Willimon, another book, profoundly beautiful book called Aging growing old in church. And I love it. He says, aging is a natural, predictable life process that imperceptibly begins at birth, accelerates in a few decades, eventually becomes undeniable, ends in death, and is the dominant factor in the last third of most people's lives. Natural and predictable, though aging may be, let's be honest, one of the reasons aging requires courage, and I will tell you that it does, is the looming, encroaching specter of death. Though mortality may have resided somewhere in our consciousness as something unpleasant that happens to others, after 65, most of us become a lot more aware of what's next. 
Now, for Christians, the chief freedom that comes with aging is the freedom to give ourselves more fully to our Christian vocation, to our calling, our partnership with God and God's ongoing work in the world. And having raised children and provided for a family, we're now free to help someone raise someone else's children, to provide for those who are living far away from family, to use resources for those whose needs are greater than our own. We are to believe that older people are not just a collection of bodily aches and pains, although we may sound that way sometimes, but people with God-given wisdom who never outgrow accountability to be active in glorifying God and enjoying him forever, as Frank prayed earlier. So Moses prays, verse 12, and this is the key verse for the whole psalm. Teach us to number our days aright, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. The church that teaches us to count our remaining days is the church that helps us to wise up and appreciate the days that we have left, using them for no better purpose than to glorify and enjoy God, who will one day lovingly take back the life that he so lovingly gave. It's wisdom to know that our days are numbered. And yet death remains a fear. And fear does not bring out the best in us. It makes us more self-absorbed and suspicious of others. So whether numbering our days brings out the best or worst in us is dependent in large part on whether we understand our days as a gift from God, a trust from God, a calling to be undertaken so that we can glorify uh, God and enjoy Him forever. So if you have the sermon outline, uh, which you can get off the website, um, I have paraphrased 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. So uh, my paraphrase reads, do, not, do you not know that your aging body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know that even in your last years you have the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You older folks are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your elderly body. It's taking a scripture that we read over and trying to apply it to us as we age. Finally, the last thing Moses prays for is the wisdom that comes from faith. Having observed these realities, he makes a few requests. We've already seen he's told us to teach us to number our days. Moses is asking God to help us remember that life is short, and he prays that we would have perspective. And we tend to think because we only have a few years, we should cram as much as possible into our lives. Our calendars are full. We're constantly on the run. We're overcommitted, so we're never home. When we are home, we're on the computer, on the phone, playing a video game, or watching TV. We spend too little time talking to our kids, and our marriage consists of conversations we have in the car, on our phone, as we go from one place to the other. Now, for some of you, that sounds way too familiar. But those who number their days take a different approach. They make decisions about what's truly important and give themselves to the pursuit of those things. They understand that sometimes you have to say no to good things so that you can focus on better things. And people who recognize the shortness of life stop to gaze at the stars and marvel at a sunset. 
They want to live mindful of the eternal. They limit their commitments so they can actually spend time with people. And they make time for God because they know that this life will soon be passed and our relationship with God is all that will be left. And if we take time to get to know God, we'll discover that he is good, merciful, holy, and loving. And we get to know him by reading the Bible, not as a history book, but as a personal communication from God to us. We get to know him by making prayer an honest conversation rather than a formal and sometimes pretentious monologue. We get to know him as we listen for the whispers of his spirit in our hearts and minds and through the lives of others. So what do we pray for in this life? Look at what Moses prays for, starting at verse 13. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So Moses asked first, he asked God to show compassion to his servants. Have you ever sinned? This is a rhetorical question. Have you ever sinned? Have you ever screwed anything up? Have you ever made serious mistakes with serious consequences? Doesn't compassion sound like a good thing to ask for? Second, Moses asked God to satisfy us with his love, to give us glad days. When was the last time you prayed for glad days? Nothing will ultimately satisfy the human heart except for God. So forget trying to fill your life with things. They will perish. Don't even put your hope in other people. They'll die. St. Augustine said it well. You made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Third, Moses asked God to reveal himself and his works to his children and to our children. I was talking with someone the other day and I said for Joanne and I, our most regular prayer each night is the Lord would draw near to our children and grandchildren and draw them to himself or draw them back to himself. What would fill our hearts more than that? And fourth, Moses asked God to rest his favor on us, to give us his grace and to establish the work of our hands. And at last, with his weakness and sin before him, Moses appeals to the grace of God to make what he's been trying to do for God worthwhile. Somehow my pages got out of order here, sorry. There we go. See, God needs nothing from us. If God has put us in this life to do something good and worthwhile for him, it's important that we do it, and we do it well. So let us pray that God would establish the work of our hands, that our work would remain to bless those who come after us. You want God to do that? Do you want your life here and what you do here to have meaning? You want to be a blessing to others? That only happens if God establishes the work of your hands. So may he do that so others who come after you will be blessed because of you. That's how you get wisdom. 
You trust God and what he's doing in your life. You accept that you're only passing through, so you focus on the eternal. And then we own our age. I'm a big believer in owning your age. One of the things that really annoys me is when I see preachers who are my age, but they dress like they're 25. And I'm like, dude, act your age. I used to say that to my kids. Now I say it to everybody. Um, But we accept our age with all of its limitations. And we number our days so that we could get a heart of wisdom. And then we pray. We pray and believe that God will be compassionate to us and our families. We pray and believe that God will satisfy us and our families with his love. We pray and believe that God will be active in the lives of our children and grandchildren, not just now, but even and especially after we're gone. And then we pray and believe that God would take the feeble efforts that we have offered him and multiply it in the lives of others so that they might be blessed and they might become a blessing to others. That's a life well lived. That's a life of wisdom. I have had the privilege of preaching the funeral services for a number of people in this church. Several of them have their picture on the wall uh, in our office. I got to explain that to a few folks at our new member class yesterday. I've said the words of comfort and condolence to quite a few families now. I have shaken the dust and dirt over quite a few graves while saying in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, we commend to Almighty God our brother and commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. In this church, we've lost Beth, Margaret, George, Cheryl, Scott, Stuart, a younger Doug, John, and Gail. I've personally done the funeral services for Phyllis, Tom and Roseanne, Bonnie, Rick, an older Doug, and most recently Jerry. And I hope I haven't forgotten anyone, though I probably have. And I'm guessing that I will probably conduct funeral services for some of you. Something to consider. This morning, I'm thinking about the fact that I'm going to die soon. I don't know how soon. I don't know whether I'll live to be 90 or get 90 more minutes. But either way, I'm going to die soon. Even if I live to be 90, I'll be looking back at my life and it will have been a vapor. I'm going to die soon, and you are too. You ever wonder how you'll be remembered? Will I, like Abraham, be remembered as a man of faith? Galatians 3. Will I, like Abraham, be remembered as a friend of God? James 2. Will people say that I, like Job, pleaded with God as a man pleads with a friend? Job 16. Will anyone think that I, like my namesake David, was a man after God's own heart who served God's purpose for his own generation? Acts 13. By the way, I want that on my gravestone. What will be said about my service in the church? Will I, like Moses, be faithful in all the house of God? Numbers 12, Hebrews 3. Will those who know me say, I love my wife as Christ loves the church? Ephesians 5. Will anyone testify that the Lord hid nothing from me because I was trusted by God to teach his wonderful deeds, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just? Genesis 18. 
I'm going to die soon, and those questions receive too little of my time and attention. And moreover, those questions seem preoccupied with what other people think. It's okay on one level, that's how the questions are asked, but what will God say when I die? Will it be written of me, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saint, David, Psalm 116. Will I hear the Lord say that David was as zealous as I am for my honor, Numbers 25, though I don't think that's true. To be like Phineas, son of Eliezer, to live only for God's honor. For the saint, death is but a carriage to eternal life and the glories of Christ. All the commendations that attend our processional will be earned by our Savior. All the fruit of our lives leading to honor among men will have been produced by the Spirit. To God be the glory, great things he has done. And we'll be better prepared for that day if we live now with the certain knowledge that we're going to die soon. And that's because we tend to live in the moment and pretend we can escape our own mortality. But death screams at us. We're not all that we think we are. Death will one day rob us of everything. And knowing this sort of relativizes, I don't know if that's a word or not, it is now, it relativizes all of our accomplishments and humbles us where we need to be humbled. And it leads us to humility and a godly fear of the one who is the creator, not the creature. It, it keeps us from being deceived about who we really are. And it also redirects our hope. We're prone to forget that we're creatures. We're also prone to base our hopes on things that won't last. And death redirects our hope to the resurrection of Jesus and the life that comes. It helps us to learn how to live for eternity. We need to learn how to die well because we've accepted our mortality and placed our hope in the resurrection life of Jesus. Christians must find a way to combine honesty about our dying with the hope of the resurrection. Because resurrection hope lies at the heart of how we grow old. Jesus triumphs over death and in one great victorious loving act takes us along with him through the resurrection from the dead. And this faith frees us from the paralysis that comes from the fear of death. Faith gives us the ability to look at death directly but also relatively. Indeed, you might think of Christianity and all of our rituals, baptisms, weddings, the Lord's Supper, funerals, our psalms and hymns, our prayers, reading and preaching of the scripture, all as training in how to die in the name of Jesus. Matt McCullough, another book, Remember Death, The Surprising Path to Hope. He argues the best way to enjoy life is to get honest about your own death. We can gain wisdom from facing our death that we won't find anywhere else. I'm not grateful for a lot of things about the pandemic, but I am grateful that it reminded me that I'm going to die. And I pray that God will allow us to use that knowledge so that we learn to live and to die well. And then we will gain a heart of wisdom. Thank God for that. Do that now and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son.
Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to number our days, let alone to pray about them. We neglect to pray for your compassion, to pray uh, that you would satisfy us with yourself, to pray uh, that you would draw near to our children and grandchildren, and in some cases our siblings, and in other cases our parents. Help us to rest in your grace, to trust in your love, and to live lives in such dependence on you that we gain a heart of wisdom. So Lord, continue to work in our hearts this summer as we turn to the Psalms, as we learn about prayer, as we draw ever closer to the one in whom we trust. And in the timeless words of the Apostles' Creed, let's say this together. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.